Okay. Well, before I begin, I want to give you an invitation. Um, most of you know I'm the director of the North Alabama Christian Children's Home. We're the other guys there in, uh, in the state of Alabama, us in Child Haven. And uh, we're not in competition. We're both doing the same thing, trying to take care of the needs of children of the state who have been abused abandoned or neglected. Back there on the table um, near the, the doors there, you'll see one of these. This is our biggest fundraising event and the most fun, I guess, we have all year long. It's a big event where if folks have horses, they can come to Robert Coates Farm, which is out in Zip City, headed toward uh, Tennessee, and ride his trails that Saturday morning, March the 3rd. But it's become a whole lot more than that. Even if you don't have horses, then this event is still a lot of fun for everybody. We had over 800 people there last year. We start at 10 o'clock with the country music group, members of the church that play there in his Amish barn. The address is at the bottom of this. There's going to be a bouncy house for the little children to enjoy. There's cotton candy. At 11.15, we have a free meal of goat stew, chicken stew, hamburgers and hot dogs, ham and beans, barbecue. And like I said, it's free. There's a donation box with somebody who'd like to put something in. But we have a two-day yard sale. And we, have, we, we made almost $3,000 off of yard sale stuff. And so there's tables and tables. This all under a tent. Uh, there on his property. And then at, 11, at 12.30, we have a public auction. And we sell anything and everything. Right now, we've got like 10 appliances, 22 pieces of furniture, autographed footballs from Auburn, Alabama, and we think and hope Tennessee. Uh, we will sell two horses. We'll sell 250-pound hogs that you can name, and then we'll send it to the processing plant, and you'll have some good food. We sell homemade quilts. We sell new furniture. We sell vacation stays. It's everything and anything, including junk. And at the end of the day, last year, we made $40,000. And so it's a big, big event for us. We would love for you to come and be with us two and a half hours from here. And uh, somebody said something about maybe I could take the bus or whatever. So take one of those. And if you're interested, talk to me more about it today or tomorrow. And we would love to have you. It's got information on there. If by chance you're going to do some spring cleaning and you say, I don't want to go through all this stuff. And you've got some good stuff, not clothes, we just can't handle that, that you would like to donate toward either the auction or the yard sale. Call us, let us know, and we'll try to work out coming and pick those up. But anyway, just wanted you to be a part of that, and you're helping all the proceeds. Every dollar goes to attending to the needs of our children. You've got a handout entitled, uh, What to Do When We Lose a Loved One. And I want us to go over that briefly. And again, as always, feel free to make a statement or comment as you'd like to. When we're trying to help others, we first of all, might need to take a look at ourselves. Develop a personal life and loss timeline. It might be well for you to go back in your life, especially if you've dealt with a lot of trauma and a lot of losses, to take a look at the gains and losses in your life. So draw a line. And above the line, put the good things. You know, went to school, married, these children, and the times that they were born. 
And then down below, maybe start beginning to think about age 10, lost my granddaddy, one of the greatest loved ones that I had. 20, started dealing with cancer. 30, you know, lost my mother. It might help you in terms of how you're dealing with your grief to sort of put that pattern, a panoramic view of your life to this point. And so that might be something uh, that would be helpful to you. It may be helpful to show that you're still standing, even with all the things that you've dealt with. And it might be amazing in that regard. Number two, accept the presence of your loss. Shock, numbness, denial, guilt, anger. I could go on and on of all the different emotions that a person's going to have. But in time, before a person can work through their grief, they have to accept the reality of that grief. It's going to take time to do. It's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen in the first week. Some of you bought the book Golden Bubbles, which is written by a lady who was a professor at Fried Hardeman who lost and endured the death of a granddaughter. And she said when finally that child died with the illness that she had, that the night of the death, she was trying to hold back her feelings, her tears, her sadness. And one of the nurses said, Honey, you're fighting against the pain. You need to fall into it. It's sort of the idea of, of a, a pig wallowing in the mire. He does that for a period of time. He can't do that continually or else his organs will shut down and he'll die. But it has to become him. And so sometimes that's important in regards to accepting the presence of your loss. The Talmud was a Jewish commentary in the first century and before the first century. It's not biblical, but it is even today uh, something where people can read of how people dealt with various things. The Talmud is the name of it. And it's basically a commentary on daily life before and in the first century. In one of the stories of the Talmud, it talks about a man that had endured a terrible loss in his life and went to the elders of the city and said, Can I tear my garment, which was an outward show of grief? And they said, Yes, you can do that, but you have to always wear it on the outside so that people, when they see this garment will know that you have experienced a loss in your life. And so he did that for a period of time. And then another time he came back to the elders of the city and he said, can I sell this garment? And they said, no, it's always going to be yours. Suggesting the idea that this grief is yours and that that's something you have to do. Thirdly, dispel the misconceptions of grief. There are myths of grief. If you don't show it, you don't have it. Why is that a myth? That if you don't show grief, then you must not have grief. What's the, what's the problem with that concept? They can't see inside. They can't see inside you. And so, yes, that's exactly right. We associate everything with emotions and they think you don't have any. Very true. They associate everything with emotions. And therefore, if they don't see you 
crying or being sad, and they think, well, they're over this by now. Yeah, and, and so that's one of the problems with this idea. Also, it may be that people do not allow you to grieve in their presence. I know of a uh, man that was a child of God, and he said that there was a uh, member of their congregation that told this story. The, the, the member of the congregation had a mother who was sick in another hospital. And she said, her preacher comes to see her, which is a wonderful thing with the condition that she has. But he cannot handle her sadness, her sorrow, because she's dealing with this cancer. So in order for her to allow him to come and see her as he wants, she asks him to call two hours before he comes. And whenever he's going to come, she just says, please call me two hours before you get here. During those two hours, she psychs herself up. She puts on her makeup. She gets herself mentally and physically ready so that when he walks in, even with the pain that she's in, she's got this big smile on her face. And the reason is, he doesn't want to live in her sadness with her pain. Isn't that sad? That that was what was really, really happening. And so some people have that idea. Grief moves in predictable stages. We've talked about that. Tears are a sign of weakness. Jesus wept. The perfect, sinless Son of God. I love the statement that somebody made. I rarely cry like a baby, but I often cry like a man. Men, we need to be able to live in a society so that fellow men can cry in our presence and not feel weak or inferior. Over there in the book of Psalms, I think it's chapter 56, verse 8, it talks about putting our tears into a bottle and that they are in the book of God. God knows the number of our tears. That's not just for women. It's also for men. I hope we're more in a society now where men are able to cry and no one thinks bad of them. You know, think about Rocky, even as that movie was. Rocky cried when his trainer died, right? He cries at the place where his body was deposited. He cried, you know, in regards to his wife. Rocky, you know, we think about that as a manly movie. And yet that was the case. And so that's one of those ideas. Openly mournful rituals are a sign of weakness. No, it's not. Rituals, things that we may do, may just be a show that that person or persons were significant to us. And therefore, whatever it is that I do, whether it means going to the cemetery every so often or regularly, 
or putting a candle in the window during the holiday season or whatever may just be, be suggesting the idea that that person is significant and therefore this is what I'm going to do. And then number five, work on others' time frame. We're going to talk about that here in just a minute, the should statements where people you know, talk about that. We, those are myths. Number four, reach out and accept help. That's what this class is about, learning how to help others in the valley of their grief. Again, that verse that we looked at the other day, Psalm 142, verse 4. I looked at my right hand and beheld, there's no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. Surely that would not be true concerning this congregation, concerning your care and love for others. Alan Wolfelt, W-O-L-F-E-F-E-L-E-F-E-L-T, has done a lot of work in regards to grief. He basically made a statement that one-third in people's lives of people are truly empathetic and want to help you in your grief journey. Another third of the people that you come in contact to with are neutral. They're not going to be a hindrance. They're not going to be a help. Another third will be harmful by their judgments in trying to take away your grief. And so we need to look for those folks who will be willing to help us. Number five, seek reconciliation, not resolution. Accept the fact that things are different. Resolution is the idea, the action of solving a problem. We can't bring someone back to life. That's not something we can do. There are times when people will make decisions that are contrary to the Word of God and are contrary to what we desire. And yet, what we try to do is try to make peace with that loss. Being okay with not knowing why or even having all the answers. Seek resolution. Seeking suggests the idea that you're looking. It's not something that's instantly going to happen, but you're looking. Number six suggests the idea of God. God is so important in our grief process. Psalm 46 verse 1. God is, not was, God is our refuge and strength. Very present help in time of trouble. And that's so, so very important. Number seven might just be some therapy on your part. Write a letter. Particularly maybe if the loss that you sustained was sudden and unanticipated and so horrific. I talked to a young boy who lost his father at the age of 10 the father chose to take his life, and therefore he died. The son did not know this, but he was really having a hard time with this issue that his daddy was no longer present. So I said, well, what would you say if you could say something to your daddy? And he said, well, and he told me the things that he wanted to say. I said, would you like to write a letter to him? Yes, I'd like to do that. So that week, that's what he did. He wrote a letter to his father. He brought it back the next week. He read the letter to me. I said, what do you want to do with it? I said, do you want to bury it where your father is? Do you want to keep it? What do you want to do with it? Do you want to show it to somebody else? He said, right now I want to keep it. 
that seemed to help him just to be able to put his thoughts on the paper. Maybe if the loss that you had did not end in the way that you wanted it to, maybe there's some unresolved issues. Write a letter with the idea this is the, these are the things that I would say to my loved one if I could. What I miss about you is fill in the blank. What I wish I had or had not said, if that's what you choose to do. What's hardest for me now, that's something that, what I am doing to keep your memory alive, that might be helpful in regards to working through your grief. Number eight, create rituals, actions that give you a way to remember your loss. Holiday seasons, there's a lot of people who do things we have sometimes people who give monetary gifts to the home in memory of their loved ones. Not just at Christmas, but throughout the year. Uh, whatever the case may be. It may be that reunions are a way to try to get, get back to family members that are important. Pictures. Honoring a significant date. Revisiting a meaningful sight. Watching a home video. A favorite song. Writing a poem. Keeping a journal of your thoughts. I always tell people in the grief class, it's important to you for you and your grief journey to write a journal. Nobody's going to see it but you. But write a journal of how you were before, how you are now, what you've learned and such like. Number nine, and this is where the congregation comes together. Tell your story to those who will listen. People need to tell their story. Their story is what happened, and how it changed them. You, you may have heard it so many times that you could repeat it over and over again. Still, they need to tell their story. Why is it important for folks in grief to continue to tell the story of what happened to them and how it changed them? Why is that important? It helps... Okay, it helps them cope with it better. It also helps validate that this actually happened. It also allows people not to forget because sometimes that's their fear that we are going to forget. And it's easy with all the things that were going on in our lives to forget what's going on in theirs. Seems like it, it would help instead of following up those emotions to express those emotions more so than just to keep it in. Very true. Very true. It also helps explain who they are now. That's a good point. Yeah. Because they are a different person. And so it helps to explain who they are now. It's very, very good. And then finally, number 10. In grief. It's important to sometimes validate the statement that William Faulkner, I mean, that, that was made by Alfred Lord Tennyson. Is it better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all? I've had some people wrestle with that. I remember one lady who lost a son, not too far from here actually, in a car accident, make the statement, right now, the way I feel with the death of my son in a car accident I just don't want the pain. And so if I had to do it over again, I wouldn't feel I w would not have desired to have had him now to have lost him. 
I don't know if she still felt that way or not, but that's the way she felt then. Most people would say, yes, the pain is great, but look at what I got because of it. Look at the blessings that are mine. Yes, this person turned out to make terrible decisions and bring horrible pain against me, but look at the children that are a blessing through all this, um, whatever the case may be. So it's something to think about. Any questions or comments concerning that before we then talk about what to say to grieving people? Any questions or any comments? You've got different pages on this. One is called Comforting Words to Say to Grieving People in Time of Loss and Tragedy. I'll let you read that for yourself. Uh, let's look at the other one. It's two pages. These are actual inappropriate comments made to grieving people that do not help in time of tragedy and loss. Some of these perhaps jump at, out at you more than others. Let's look at number two. You should not feel that way. You should not say that. You should not think that. Why are should statements inappropriate when somebody is telling you what you should or should not be doing or should not be saying? They're not your daddy. They're not your daddy. <laughs> That's good. Exactly right. You don't want to be told how you're supposed to feel. You're not, you don't want to be told how you're supposed to feel. Exactly right. It also sort of makes them superior that they would think that they need to make a judgment concerning your grief. Now, the only problem with that is one out of every five on average that come, comes to the funeral home during time of visitation, one out of only five have any thought whatsoever concerning what you're going through because of their own losses. So four out of five that are saying things don't have a knowledge behind it. Don't, they don't have experience behind it. They've not dealt with what you are dealing with. I didn't say they're ignorant. I just said that one out of five on average. I was, this, was, this is what a funeral home director told me. Because he, he's heard it all. One out of five only typically know what the families in grief or who have lost someone are feeling at all. Four out of five don't. They're from Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're from Ohio. And so should statements. Now, I don't know what he means by not think that. Truly people don't need to think about, I'm going to take my life. I've had people grieving say, Don, if it were not for, and they name who they are, life would not be worth living. Now there's a big difference between that feeling and the idea of, I'm going to take my life. And I'd be concerned about that. But they were just saying, I feel so sad, so much loss. So, this was a, a widow who had said this. 
And she named her child. Were it not for her, that's this same lady, a good Christian lady, worked at a courthouse. And yesterday, last night we were talking about, and somebody put, Ron, somebody suggested the idea of envy. And she's the one who told me, Don, at the courthouse, I see marriages happening and I see divorces taking place right and left. And she said, so many of these people are just throwing away good marriages. And I'm so envious because my husband, who died sadly choking on a piece of steak in our house at our kitchen table, and I could not save him, try as I could. We had a wonderful, godly Christian marriage. And I'm envious for those folks who are just throwing it away. And that was the word that she used. Because she saw the good, the bad, and the ugly. She saw good marriages beginning, but she saw folks throwing it away. And she said, we had a wonderful, and yet look at what happened in that regard. Number three, it must have been God's will. What's the problem with the idea of suggesting that a loss must have been God's will? We put everything on God, whether it's good or bad, and we want to jump the gun and blame God, but we forget that the devil is actually playing a part in our life too. And a lot of times he comes in and he tries to steal our joy and we forget to blame him for things. Can you go with Ron and I everywhere we go? You are, she's got some good answers. Uh, her point is that we often bring up God when in fact the issue is Satan in terms of the work that he's doing to try to, to hurt us and to get us to turn away from God. And again, we go back to judge and jury. Who am I to know the will of God in all things? Now, we know what the will of God is in terms of the Bible, in terms of what He wants for us and our souls. But is it Isaiah that talks about sometimes our thoughts are not His thoughts? And our Yeah, yeah. Where, where there are times when we don't understand the complete will of God. And yet I'm afraid that sometimes by mentioning the name of God, then we think, well, okay, that's it. That's just it. You know, uh, by saying that, God is a God of love. God is a God of sorrow. He, 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 he was grieved in his heart that he had made man, and yet he was willing to continue to work through the lives of mankind through the, the ultimate the ultimate loss of his own son for you and for me. I was going to say God's merciful in, in the way he handles things and does things. We can't see the future, therefore we don't know what we might have more than that was worse. Right, right. So, I, I know that, that sounds like I'm saying the same thing that's written there, but it's... I just feel like he's merciful. And it takes a while sometimes to see that he is merciful. That's true. That's true. That's a good point. I really appreciated that. It goes along with number seven. God must have needed him or her. Uh, This is sometimes said in regards to a child that passes away. God needed another jewel in his crown. He needed another voice in his choir. One of our ladies in our class was saying, 
A 33-year-old mother just died. She left behind three little children, you know, five and under. And yet there was somebody that said that to the family, that God must have needed, you know, another voice in his choir. So he took their mother to fulfill his needs of his choir. That's just not the God that I see in the Bible. They didn't say that about the death of a child. They said that about the death of a mother who was leaving behind the little children. And that's just not the way it is. You know, Acts chapter 17, to, that, to the unknown God there in Athens, it was the other way around. It's not that God needs anything from us, but he says in verse 28, it's in him that we live, that we move, that we have our very being. We need Him. It's not that He's going to be inferior unless He has us or one of our children or one of our grandchildren. And so that just does not help. Look at number number five. You have got to be strong for. And think of it this way. Imagine that a father dies sadly leaving behind children And somebody goes to the oldest child of that family, which is a son, 12 years of age, and says, you've got to be the man of this house. You've got to be strong for your mother, for your siblings. What's the problem with that concept? You're putting pressure on them. You're putting pressure on it. Does the death of his father now make a 12-year-old a man? Not at all. And so, at best, he's going to fail. He's going to do everything he can, but at best, he's going to fail in some ways. Why? Because he's a 12-year-old child, not even a teenager. And so that concept of that putting that responsibility on someone in, in that regard, what would be a better way What could you say to that 12-year-old son if in fact his father did die in an untimely way? What could be helpful for you to say to that 12-year-old son? I'm here for you. You don't always have to be strong. You don't always... What? You're exactly right. You don't always have to be strong. That's exactly right. I think it goes along the lines too about men aren't supposed to cry or you know, society thinks that men aren't supposed to cry and therefore if you're telling them to be strong and they fail, they feel weak. Yes. There's a church in Louisiana that as a part of their benevolent program they had a lot of young men that did not have fathers as mentors. And so this congregation in Louisiana, and I thought this was so neat, developed this program whereby men of the congregation would regularly spend time with these young, growing boys, trying to mentor them, trying to be there for them, trying to help them. They would do such things as teaching them how to drive helping them get their first job, uh, helping them have a good graduation from high school. 
even to the point that whenever they did go and begin to look for career choices, they would help buy suits for this young man. And I thought, wow, how wonderful that they're basically saying, you don't have to do all this by yourself. We're going to be there as a part of the family of God to help you with this as well. And that's exactly what needs to be done. Number 12, good will come out of this, I promise. I don't know exactly where Ron is going with that particular comment, but I'm thinking of a godly Christian preacher man. Some of you would know him. And when he lost a relative, a young relative, uh, in a terrible accident, not just anybody, but a fellow preacher told him that good would come out of the loss of his close relative and that he would be a better preacher because of the loss of his grandson. The last time I spoke with that godly Christian preacher, he said, I've not seen the good that he has suggested yet. Terrible accident? Yes. Terrible tragedy? Yes. Faithful child of God in a better place? The son was. The grandson was. But it, it, was, it was just terrible that that was said to him, but that a fellow preacher... And that doesn't make us immune. We, 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 we put our foot in our mouths also. A lot of times. When, when they sing How Firm a Foundation, Ron and I know. These are 14s here, folks. And whenever they sing How Firm a Foundation, we know exactly what that song means because we've got one. But sometimes, as Andy Griffith said, that big thing fit in my whole mouth. You've seen that, commercial, that statement he made? Yeah. And sometimes both of them do. Let's turn it around. Had that happened, which did happen, what could have been said to that godly preacher over the terrible loss of his grandson? What could we say? Nothing would be better than that. I can only imagine what you are going through. I will be praying for you on a daily basis. I am so sorry for your tragic loss. So, sometimes I say, I don't know what to say. And then I shake their hand, and that works sometimes. Very true. Very true. It's really not what we say, but it's what we do that really makes the, the, the difference. But you see the inappropriate things that people sometimes say, and we could go on and on and on, we will not. Sometimes there are cliches. Big boys don't cry. We've heard that one before. Instead of that, 
to that boy whose daddy has died or to that boy whose granddaddy just died and that granddaddy and him did so much, what could you say? What are some better alternatives besides the idea that big boys don't cry? What are some things we could say? It's okay for you to be yourself. It's okay for you to be yourself. It's okay if you want to cry. Here's my shoulder. Here is my shoulder. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's not only okay for you to, to want to cry, but it's okay for you to want to cry in my presence if you want to. Remind them that they're not weak if they choose to cry. They're not what now? They're not weak if they choose to cry. Exactly right. What if somebody tells a mother who's a wife who's lost her husband, now you've got to be strong for your children. Which again, is taking away her grief because she's got to be superwoman. That hurts to do that. <laughs> uh, I can do this with... Uh, but, you know, you've got to be strong for your children. What would be a, what's something else that you could say? What about, why don't you share your feelings with your children? That may open up a discussion. That may take away, we're all on the same page. We're all, we're all crying together because of the loss. My mate, your father... And yet, we're all in this together. We try to accommodate their feelings and not take it alone, take it away. It was God's will. There are some things in life that we just don't understand, isn't there? Because there are some things. We talked about 9-11. Will we ever understand that? Evil. Evil reigned. We know that. That was not the will of God for 3,000 people to meet Him in eternity because of the evils of some people. That's not the will of God. And so sometimes we equate the idea of that. God will never give us more than we can handle. How do you deal with that one? How do you answer that? Why not say something, you know... There's so many things that we don't understand in life, but God's promise is that He will never abandon us. You know, turn it around. Make it a positive idea rather than, than saying that you know, God will never give us more than we can handle. Uh, the lady known as Mother Teresa made the statement that you know, I, I know that God's going to be there with me, but I wish He just didn't trust me so much by giving me all this bad stuff that I have to deal with. And sometimes we feel like it's going to be heaped upon us. Sometimes we feel like that. And then finally we end with this statement, Now if you need me, you call me. What's the problem with that concept? They don't know what they need. They may not know what they need, They can't remember who you are. They can't remember the context in which it was said. And so, be specific. In a few days, I am going to be calling you. 
That puts the burden on you, not on them. I'm going to be calling you to see if there's something that I can do for you. Can, can I help you with the paperwork that you've got to deal with? Can I help sit with, if it's somebody who is dealing with a chronic illness or a terminal illness, can I sit with him while you go and spend some time taking care of yourself, going to the doctor, going to buy groceries? Can I go buy groceries for you and bring them to you? Can I go to the pharmacy and pick up something and bring it to you? Be specific about things that you can do to help in the lives of others. Any other thoughts or any other comments before we end tonight? Would it be inappropriate to tell them, like, you know, the person that died, like, they wouldn't want you to be sad, or to tell, like, the grieving widow or whoever it was that they should continue living their life to make whoever died past, or whoever passed away happy or make them proud? Okay. The question's asked. If there's a if there's if you're talking to a grieving widow who's lost her husband, should we make the statement that he would not want you to be sad, but that he would desire for you to do something to keep his memory alive? Is that sort of what you were saying? The first part of that I think would be the concern, and that is that you're making that judgment that they can't be sad because everybody needs you're going to be sad. Love plus loss equals grief. You're going to feel sadness because that person was a part of your life. I think it's all right to validate their sadness while at the same time trying to do something that in time they can do in memory of their loved one. In the first few days, weeks, months, that's probably not the time to do that. Later on down in the grief journey, there might be a way to do it. Um, Earl Grohman, a Jewish rabbi who did a great deal of work in the area of grief, said that the greatest monument that one can ever erect for their loved one is to live a life meaningful in their memory. Doing something that lifts their memory up. Hebrews 11.4 Though Abel be dead, yet still he speaks. And so what we do with what is left is up to us. And in time, they may choose to do that. They may choose to honor their loved one. Um, there are different ways that people can do memories. A, a book given in memory of someone or planting a tree in memory of someone or donating money, whether it be to a children's home or a worthy cause, in memory of someone. We had a lady who lost her son in a car accident and for several years, every December, she would get with me and say, we're not going to have a lot of Christmas in our house. It's just too painful. But give me a list of some of your children's needs for Christmas. We want to buy gifts in his memory. That's how she got through it. Same lady on Thanksgiving Day would go to a food center and hand out meals. And she said, I'd have a good, tired feeling at the end of the day because I had fed people. She was doing all of that in memory of her son. Couldn't bring the son back. The son died in a car accident. But she was doing something to memorialize him. This was done in his memory. 
And I think whenever we try to do something like that, uh, it can be very, very helpful. We're going to stay around afterwards. If you have any thoughts or comments or anything else, your own story that you would like to tell, we really do thank you again for coming out and being uh, with us. Feel free again to pick up one of these if you'd like to, and we'd love to have you come and be with us for that. Why don't we end with a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, You are the giver of life. You are the sustainer in death. You are the God of all comfort. And we are so grateful that when there are so many questions and so many thoughts in our mind that we can't put together, that we know that You know what is best and You are there in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our sorrows. We ask, Father, that You'll bless this congregation. We thank You for its leaders and for their willingness to have this workshop so that people can better know how to grieve and how to help others that are grieving. We pray, Father, that all who have come tonight, some with their own sorrows and burdens, some just trying to help others, can learn how to better be able to be the people of God that you want us to be. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for loving us and thank you for the joy and the hope of heaven. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.